0: The Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast, a partner of the ACP Critical Care Peer and a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. Well, today's episode is an absolute awesome one. I will give a quick PSA that may have, if you're a Bills fan, you listen to the very end of the episode, you will realize I may have reverse jinxed it, um... The, the home opener. I'm very sorry. But um, today's episode is awesome. Uh, Nick Cervati joins me uh, to discuss what I would consider one of our core clinical topics, right? ACS or acute coronary syndrome. So I would say we focus more on STEMI, right? Those are typically more of our critically ill patients, but we still definitely cover uh, how they present in the ED, what's going on pathophysiology-wise, and what are differences in management specifically between those STEMI and, and STEMI patients. So, I mean, we discuss Mona myths, P2Y12 pretreatment, thrombolytics, anticoagulation, vasoactives, right, inotropes versus uh, vasoconstrictors or vasopressors, when to use IV antiplatelets, a STEMI checklist of sorts, and much, much more. Uh, This is a jam-packed and fantastic episode, so let's get going. Very excited to uh, be joined by Nick Cervati uh, Nick is a CVICU ICU clinical specialist and RPD for the PGY two cardiology program at UMass medical center in Massachusetts. Find him on Twitter at farm D to the L a D. That's a great, that's a great cards uh, Twitter name. Nick, how are you, man?
1: I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me.
0: I'm doing great. Um, so I have to ask, we were, we were preparing for this and, I was asking, you know, um, where you were from. You're like, I'm actually not from, from Massachusetts. I'm from Buffalo. So two part question, number one, are they Buffalo wings or chicken wings? And then number two, give us, give us the, the scoop on one of, maybe not your like number one favorite, but maybe like your number two favorite wing place in Buffalo. Because for those who don't know, like that's the, that's the capital for this. So Nick grew up in in chicken wing heaven.
1: Yes. Yes. The Mecca of chicken wings. I would say to answer your first question, I've always called them the, a chicken wing. I don't know if that's because we're from Buffalo, but I guess if I were to throw down the gauntlet and say, Hey, where are chicken wings from? The, it's a Buffalo chicken wing. But you know, when you say Buffalo, it's almost like back home, you're saying like, I want a chicken wing in Buffalo style, right? Like, like you want a Buffalo sauce. So you wouldn't say a Buffalo wing, but then you want it in a barbecue sauce. So I think that would just make it too confusing.
0: Okay. That makes, that actually does make sense. Okay.
1: And then I guess, you know, where would I tell somebody to go get chicken wings? You know, I went to to University of Buffalo and honestly, between the two campuses was a Duff's, uh, Duff's Wings. And that was kind of the location to go to. Uh, They were always crispy. You'd always ask for them extra crispy. That's the key. Before the sauce goes on, it has to be crispy. Um, but you know, anchor Bar is the original, if you really want to go for the whole trip down memory lane, but I would say dust if I had to pick and go back. Let's go. That's
0: great. Love that. That's definitely one. Cause the problem is when you, when you look, it's like a list of like 10 of them. It's like, where do we even start? So that's oh, yeah. perfect. And what a, <laughs> what an awesome segue. We're talking about chicken wings, um, into our discussion today on ACS or acute coronary syndromes. <laughs> um, so, we're going to walk, Nick and I are going to walk through the full process from basically their acute presentation to the ED front to discharge. So, we'll work to include some of the management differences from STEMI and NSTEMI, et cetera. So, naturally, of course, we're going to start with the emergency medicine management and go from there. Um, so, Nick, let's quickly get into like the pathophysiology here for a second. And what is happening in a STEMI physiologically compared to an NSTEMI? And how does that manifest symptom wise?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think when we talk about acute coronary syndromes and ACS, it really is a spectrum, right, ranging from, you know, unstable angina to acute MI. And the way we differentiate an acute MI is then by EKG findings. Um, You know, differentiating between unstable angina and MI, we're really thinking, do you have a positive troponin leak or not? Um, Unstable angina is essentially demonstrating that you have myocardial ischemia, uh, and usually, obviously, the most common presenting symptom there would be chest pain, adjina, um but without actual acute necrosis of the tissue. You know, different from what's going on with an acute MI, differentiated between an, an N-STEMI or a STEMI, right? Your non-ST segment elevation versus having a positive ST segment elevation. Um, you know, with an N-STEMI, you're really thinking that that plaque rupture that's occurring and the thrombus that's forming, you have a partial occlusion of the vessel that's resulting in Uh, subendocardial infarct compared to a STEMI where you actually have transmural infarct because you have complete occlusion of the vessel.
0: So what is, what's like a classic STEMI presentation? Like if you're taking like the cardiology boards, right? How are they going to, what's that patient going to look like? And what are maybe some key differences, you know, in a STEMI presentation compared to that in STEMI presentation?
1: Right, right. You know, I I think, we often talk about what are some abnormal symptoms, uh, what are other symptoms that people may present with, right? Trying to encourage and, and make uh, make people aware in the public of other things beyond just chest pain. But, you know, 80% of men and women do present with chest pain or chest, chest pressure. It's crushing, uh, you know, this impending sense like an elephant is sitting on my chest, that kind of feeling is still quite common. Now people will present with anginal equivalents, right? other symptoms that are describing their anginal pain without being traditional chest pressure, uh, diaphoresis, indigestion, shoulder, arm pain. And then in women specifically, you're more likely to see things like dizziness, syncope, uh, you know complaining of shortness of breath or palpitations. So in terms of symptoms, all of ACS in the spectrum should really be presenting with some form of symptom. Uh, I guess in in terms of presentations NSTEMI versus STEMI, it's not to say that an NSTEMI cannot present, uh, you know, hemodynamically unstable, but it is more likely, for example, that you'll have an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest if you have a STEMI. Um, You are more likely to be hemodynamically unstable, potentially be already in a state of shock, depending on how long the STEMI infarct has been occurring. Um, So I guess those would be some differences, right, as we think across the whole spectrum from someone who could be absolutely chest pain free asymptomatic or coming in with an anginal equivalent all the way to someone who's actually cardiac arresting, uh, and, and the, the stages in between.
0: And the spectrum is real there. Um, because it's, you know, the STEMI patient and if they say they're going to, they feel like they're going to die, right? They are going to die right in front of you until otherwise proven. And that is when I think of (laughs) someone saying they're going to, they feel like they're dying, it was my one aortic dissection and the STEMI, right? Those are like the big, those are things I think of. So um, tip away. Now you mentioned some of those, those key differences um, in presentation based on that physiology you said, but most of the management, right? Of course, is guided by the electrocardiogram or EKG, right? It's literally Mm -hmm. non ST elevation versus ST elevation. So most of us won't be EKG experts, hand up, I am not. People will hand me the EKG, and I'll look at it and hand it right back, right? If I can see it, bad things are happening. Now, what are classic EKG signs of a STEMI, things that we would maybe consider pharmacist positive we could keep our eyes peeled for?
1: Yeah, of course. You know, I think one of the, there's a really great graphic and tons of different graphics out there that look at the the 12 leads. You have your six limb leads, your six precordial leads, and kind of anatomically, what is their location with one of the three major coronary arteries? Um, I think you know traditionally, right? What's going to be farm positive is that classic tombstoning, where the J point on the EKG—that's where your QRS complex meets the ST segment—is elevated, along with the T wave. Quite literally, uh, you know, looking like a tombstone, looking like something out of a graveyard. That's your telltale. Uh, you know, something out of a movie almost. I think. That, and in, in usually tombstoning occurring uh, within leads V3 through V4 would be very indicative of an, of an anterior STEMI, something that's going to be associated with the LAD, something that's going to be associated with a lot of left ventricular dysfunction, and therefore highest risk for, uh, you know, cardiogenic shock and, and moving into a rest. I think another one that's really important to know, especially within the ED, are you know, when someone says, oh, it looks like this patient's having an inferior STEMI, uh, you know, what are your inferior leads? I would say, you know, traditionally you're talking 2, 3, and AVF. Those are going to be, you know, usually accompanied by something called reciprocal depressions in leads 1 and AVL. So reciprocal changes are really, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it, the opposite deflection uh, mirrored basically 180 degrees on the opposite anatomical lead. Right. So if you're, seeing, if you're seeing elevations in one area on the exact opposite anatomical leads, a reciprocal change would be a depression. And so that's something that you can see is, you know, ST elevations in, in your leads 2, 3 and abs. You know, in other words, your inferior leads with reciprocal depressions in leads 1 in ABL. And why is this, you know, important in the ED? I'd say uh, most people, uh, you know, around, around 40% of inferior MIs will be associated with the right ventricle. Uh, and, you know, when you have RV involvement, you're now preload sensitive. So you really should probably consider nitrates to a certain extent contraindicated, uh, you know, and you would want to grab a fluid bolus quick and early if the patient becomes hypotensive. Now, to add to that, you know, 60% of those inferior MIs are not going to have RV involvement. Some some ways to tell is if the ST elevation in lead three is actually larger than in lead two. That's really just because lead three is more rightward facing. So it's, it's more telling of the RV involvement. Um, so those things combined could kind of tip you off to be very careful with, with nitrates and, and grab some fluids quick.
0: And that's a, that's a really, really good point about the inferior MIs. Unfortunately, sometimes you find out because you give nitrates unknowingly and then their blood pressure plummets and you're like, well, Probably part of that forty percent that has some RV involvement with that, um, but that's why it's important to kind of recognize that on the EKG. Um, the other other note, I didn't I didn't know this as a student, right? So learn from my mistakes is one of my favorite segments on here. The tombstone is not a um, like tabletop tombstone; it is more of like a curved um, curve kind of to a tip a little bit. So just FYI to avoid embarrassment, that's the tombstone uh, that you're, <laughs> that you're looking from there. Everyone's probably like, of course, like Nick, did, you didn't know that like, but either way. Um, so another, another kind of like old school, I guess, approach to, to ACS, a classic acronym, right? Like 15, 20 years ago, it was taught like fast tugs BID was Mona. Um, Mona meaning morphine, oxygen, nitrates, and aspirin. So we're always learning, especially in cardiology, biggest trials, a lot of information coming hot and heavy. Let's go through and discuss if each of these is still valuable for our acute ACS care. So let's start with with morphine. Lead us off.
1: All right. So good old morphine. In terms of pain relief, uh, having some anxiolytic effect as well. You're obviously, why are we doing this? Reducing oxygen consumption that's being driven by that sympathetic overdrive because of the situation. Um, you know, we're trying to reduce myocardial oxygen demand in that setting. The trade-off is that it does slow gastric absorption. And therefore, we, we know that it will slow and delay the onset of oral absorption of our antiplatelets, namely the P2I-12 inhibitors, things like clopidogrel, prostagrel, ticagrelor. That's been proven in the PD data. Um, the ruling is still kind of out on whether this translates to hard clinical outcomes. Depending on the guideline you look at, whether it's the Americans or the more recently updated European guidelines from 2023, they're offering a class 2A to 2B recommendation, you know, considering weighing risk and benefits. And overall, until and so there's better data that's looking at hard clino- clinical outcomes, assessing whether this PD data translates into actual harm. Uh, I would probably hesitate and really uh, be confident that this is absolutely necessary in terms of the anxiolytic and analgesic effects of administering morphine or fentanyl, uh, especially in the ED or pre-revascularization, that that's not going to be outweighed by the risk of uh, reduced onset and flow onset of your PGY-12 inhibitors. And, and morphine's
0: like the it's my least favorite opioid that to give in like the acute setting, like it's got the biggest histamine release, got the biggest chance of the, of a, the cross reactivity. And then, you know, I think this all started the whole idea of kind of questioning this, the, the acronym and especially the use of morphine started with the crusade trial, right? That was non-randomized, but showed the data that in Nstemi STEMI patients, people did worse with morphine. So I think that's where you highlighted all the things To consider and why we probably want to err on the side of not doing it. And I think this probably really started the ball rolling of like, hmm, maybe, maybe um, the M needs to be taken away. All right. So let's, uh, we're on ONA now, I guess. So let's go into oxygen.
1: Oxygen. This one a lot more straightforward. You've got really two trials the avoid trial, you've got the detox AMI trial. Uh, That was over 6,000 patients. Anyone with an oxygen saturation above 90%, they basically administered nasal cannula six liters versus doing nothing. Uh, And all-cause mortality at one year was no different. Uh, So at this point, the guidelines are pretty clear in the recommendation that it's a class one recommendation if the oxygen saturation is less than 90%. However, really probably avoid and or it's not necessary in anyone who is already saturating well.
0: And I think like where I feel like this could classically maybe come up is, you know, sometimes people will give like EMS might give oxygen sometimes for patient comfort. They're hyperventilating and things, right? They're having this chest pain. And when they get transferred over, we're we're so worried about the MI, we forget that they're still on the 10 liter non-rebreather, right? And so just things to think of, right? Things that we can kind of help with with that perspective. All right, so hmm, now it's just nah, nah. So let's go into nitrates are in.
1: Nitrates, you know, I'd say they're often misused as a diagnostic tool, right? You know, oftentimes people would, would administer a sublingual nitro if there were improvement in symptoms. Maybe that relates to, you know, being non-diagnostic, um, you know, for, for an ACS event. But, you know, really the only time where you should probably utilize nitrates from a diagnostic perspective is if you have complete resolutions of your ST elevations and full symptom relief, that's probably suggestive of some vasospasm components of coronary vasospasm. Um, otherwise, you know, nitrates, they remain a, a high recommendation within the somewhat outdated American guidelines or right? in our NSTEMI and STEMI guidelines coming from 2014 and 2013. Uh, you know, you can consider sublingual nitro. Uh, it is a class one recommendation, but we want to be mindful of who to avoid this in. Uh, and there's obviously some groups to avoid it in. Uh, we already kind of touched on in how inferior MIs, especially those that have RV involvement, are going to be more preload sensitive. Um, obviously, you know, thinking about NAPLEX discussions, PD5 inhibitors, right, your sulzenafil, avoiding those as you can have profound hypotension if administered within, you know, 24 to 48 hours. Um, and then a caution, a specific one is if you have a patient who has actually known severe aortic stenosis, they're actually afterload sensitive to a certain perspective. And so avoiding nitrates in those individuals uh, is going to be beneficial. And the evidence for sublingual nitro is totally extrapolated from IV nitrates or PO-long-acting formulations. There is no evidence that supports nitros, uh, and that, that it improves survival or the incidence of you know, major adverse cardiovascular events in the setting of ACS. So no evidence to support their use. Definitely some patient populations to avoid in, and I would not trust it as a diagnostic tool.
0: And so like right now we're 3 for 3 on things that physiologically should make sense to help, right? Morphine, that vasodilator, the oxygen, right? It's said you have the domain, the the oxygen demand mismatch, right? You give oxygen that should help, nitrates, right? It should reduce all that stuff, but it right. hasn't been shown, right? So we're we're 0 for 3. Now let's highlight let's highlight aspirin. Um kind of our the the fourth member of the Mona Mount Rushmore.
1: Yes, and aspirin is the one and only of the four that does have, you know, a mortality benefit. Um, This is extrapolated from somewhat of an old trial, right, ISIS-2. We're talking the 80s. It did improve cardiovascular mortality um, and improved reinfarction rates with really no difference in major bleeds. Um, But this is something uh, to obviously consider and should be received, all ACS patients should be receiving. Uh, you know, going for that 325 milligram dose up front, chewable if possible, um, and uh, this is the one tried and true that I would say remains and should be given in all E C S patients from our from our Mona.
0: And especially in the E D, that's one where you just—it's important. It's always important to hear the report, but definitely listening if EMS gave it. Did they take it at home, etc. Um, to make sure that they're that they're getting that three twenty four chewable or crushed. If you if you don't have that, so yeah, okay, we're gonna have to be looking for for a new a new acronym because clearly um, the letter <laughs> A is I think he, isn't an acronym. I th- we feel like we probably need three there, so we'll yeah. <laughs> we'll we'll keep working uh, we'll keep working on that. Now, if you work at a center with cardiothoracic surgeons and the possibility of cardiothoracic surgery um, a question that comes up is what to do regarding the p2y12 inhibitors and giving loading doses in the ed are there guideline-based recommendations for what to do or is it more anecdotal based on the surgeon center and or the
1: agent themselves this is one of my favorite controversies right now I would say, you know, in terms of the guidelines, they're actually with the, the 2023 ESC Congress that actually released their, their latest updates to the ACS guidelines. There's just something about the Europeans. They make the prettiest guidelines. They stay up to date. The uh, they're blowing us out of the water. Um, so you, what they have commented is actually a for, for NSTOMI specifically, it's now a class three recommendation should absolutely avoid pretreatment with a y 12 inhibitor if you have an early invasive strategy planned, that that meaning you are planning to go for PCI within 24 hours of symptom onset. They give it a class 2B recommendation. So it's not totally avoid, but it may be considered if you are not going for PCI within 24 hours and you are also not high bleeding risk. And then in terms of STEMI, uh, they at least give a recommendation. It's not very strong. It's class 2B again, may be considered if you are planning to undergo a primary PCI strategy for revascularization which we know for semi-patients that is the majority uh, of the time the strategy that will be taken I think you know when we think about the risk obviously there's a theoretical benefit for pretreatment right you you know that you want to get antiplatelet agents on board just from a from a pathophysiology standpoint but there's really no large-scale evidence to support that it's absolutely necessary uh, and what are the risks obviously you mentioned from a, from a cardiac surgery standpoint when we go for angiography it doesn't necessarily mean that PCI is going to be the only revascularization method and cabbage and bypass may be uh, what is uh, more appropriate for that patient and if you give a oral p 2 12 inhibitor up front you are really stuck with it unless the surgeon wants to accept the risk of having that on board from a bleeding perspective and that risk is real uh you know it, it is certainly real and something not to be taken all too lightly, and then it depends on the agent, right? If you if you go after ticagrelor loading up front, okay, maybe you wait about seventy two hours. You're you're likely safe and have full offset of the drug. But if you give a, a loading dose of prasugrel, which I don't think many centers do, but but if you should, you're stuck with that for for at least a week, um, and so that makes it a little bit difficult. I think from an NSTEMI standpoint, we do have a bit more data. There's been the ACOF trial. It found not only no benefit, but actually a higher bleeding risk with prasugrel pretreatment um, compared to giving that at the time of the PCI. And then more recently, we had the dubious trial, an incredible acronym, uh, which didn't find a difference in bleeding rates, uh, but was actually stopped early for futility. Uh, this was specifically again unstable angina and semi-patients, so not semi-patients, um, and they were those that were scheduled for uh, angiography within three days of admission. So I think we definitely have data to say likely avoid. If not definitely avoid an STEMI, depending on your revask strategy. And for STEMI, yeah we, we don't have a whole lot of evidence at this point um, but we certainly know that there is a risk associated with it.
0: Yeah, it's certainly one that I feel like if you're if you're in this setting, you should ask I, I typically you know you can give that aspirin up front, sure hundred percent 324 but um, you know my guidance is typically always asking what the surgeon wants because inevitably, If you give one agent, they wanted you to give the other. Or if you gave it, they didn't want it given. And if you didn't give it, they want it, right? It's just the way everyone who's worked there, they know that that's just the way it's going to work. So, But it sounds like, yeah, you highlighted some trials that make it very less nuanced for unstable angina and NSTEMI and very clear um, if you're going for that early invasive strategy um, to avoid. So good good discussion there. Now, will kind of a last line intervention, right, Many of us, I think myself included, I received my first experience using this treatment during COVID is thrombolytics for treatment of an acute MI. So generally speaking, when are thrombolytics indicated in ACS and is there, I feel like whenever with thrombolytics, you're always thinking of timeframes, right? So is there a window we need to meet in order to, to safely give it if we do?
1: So essentially what the guidelines ask us to ask ourselves is, Are is the patient arriving to a PCI center? And if not, can they be at a PCI center within two hours? And if the answer to that question is no, the recommendation is to go towards the fibrinolytic pathway. Now, I will say that the most recent European updates have a really aggressive, you know, quote, door to needle time of less than 10 minutes once that decision is made. Um, yeah, I know. I, I was kind of shocked by that. I think it's a pretty aggressive and I'm not confident that many centers will be able to meet it. But that's really kind of the time frame: is that 120 minutes. If you cannot meet it, then you should administer a fibrinolytic essentially as soon as possible. Now, when this was, you know, something that's been looked at in the past, the window of benefit is greatest within the first three hours. If the lytic at any, any time point after three hours from symptom onset the benefit kind of drops off pretty drastically, but still you have and maintain that risk of obviously administering a fibrinolytic. Um, you know, I think from this perspective, there's been a, a new avenue of literature looking at a pharmacoinvasive strategy. You might have heard it as the drip and chip strategy, where the lytic is kind of administered as soon as possible with a plan that the patient can be at a PCI-capable center and will be receiving angiography within 24 hours. Um, So, I do want to make a point here because I'll tell you, Nick, w- the patient population that I've seen lytics in the most, more than I ever thought I would, were actually elderly patients. Elderly patients who either wanted to avoid an invasive strategy um, it, or patients who did not want to revoke their DNR to go to the cath lab. And so, because of that, I've seen a lot of use, uh, not only because of COVID, but also in this patient population. And there are two, stri- two trials, the STREAM-1 and STREAM-2 trials, that were both looking at pharmacoinvasive strategies, both looking at tenecteplase. Uh, essentially, they were administering it as soon as possible, if not pre-hospital, followed by angiography within the next 6 to 24 hours, or rescue PCI if the, the lytic failed. And this was compared to primary PCI. So this was all STEMI patients presenting within three hours of their symptom onset, um, they found no difference in the primary outcome of one-year mortality in the initial stream trial. What they did find was this excess of intracranial hemorrhage in patients 75 years or older. So halfway through the study, they actually amended the protocol, and they did a 50% dose reduction of connective place for every weight category on any patient 75 or older. And the subsequent 100 or so patients treated had zero intracranial hemorrhages. Now, just recently this year, those same authors looked at the data from STREAM and from the ASCENT trial. They basically found patients 60 years or older were having higher rates of ICH and other major bleeds and said, why don't we replicate the STREAM-1 trial, but we're going to do 50% to to place from the get-go, and we're going to only treat patients 60 years or older. Now, it didn't pan out entirely as they wanted. They did, again, find that it was non-inferior to a primary PCI strategy, but they actually had six intracranial hemorrhages in the TMK group versus none in the primary PCI group. Now, the authors comment, hey, that was on the patient population group of 60 to 74, and it was in three of those six ICHs, there were major protocol violations, you know, super therapeutic levels of anticoagulation, uncontrolled hypertension with diastolics into the one-teens. And they basically say that if it had been followed appropriately, it would have been unlikely that we would have seen that same result. Uh, but I think at this point, the guidelines actually, specifically the European guidelines, make a recommendation, it's a class 2A recommendation, to consider half-dose place in those that are 75 or older.
0: And that half-dose place, correct me if I'm wrong, that's the dosing that we use for stroke, the 0.25 mg per kg.
1: Essentially, yep. Um.
0: Well, that's a really good. That's a that's an interesting point you made. I hadn't thought about the specifically the revoking the DNRS right because they have to get, um, you know, intubated and things. So that's a. I bet there probably are um, people who are using this more and more. Dude, so do they recommend place over AltaPlace, or is it? Do they have guidance for AltaPlace as well?
1: So they don't, they don't actually give guidance on alteplase dosing, and they don't give a recommendation for one over the other. It is simply that should you have a patient 75 or older, they recommend that half their strategy based on this. And honestly, the evidence for alteplase, it, it doesn't really exist. There is a trial out there, but it didn't enroll patients greater than 75 years of age, It was just adults up to 75 years old. Um, so we don't really ha- have much data for alteplase in that greater than 75 using a reduced dose.
0: And the alteplase dosing is complicated in an MI. No. It is, it is not easy. Like there's three different things. No. It's even more complicated than iscu- acute ischemic stroke where tinecteplase is literally yeah. IV push, right? It's literally make it the first right. time you do right. it. You're like, wait, wait, I'm gotta be missing some steps. I'm used to like 13 yeah. things with alteplase. So, um, yeah. Um, all right. So our patients moving from the ED to the cath lab and another cornerstone of that acute ACS management anticoagulation. Now, most of the evidence kind of sorted out, we've shaken out to to two primary agents, unfractionated heparin or the direct thrombin inhibitor by Valerudin. Is there a clear number one agent here or is the discussion like so many things a little more nuanced than that?
1: I think at this point, if you were to ask most interventionalists, their established kind of standard of care is going to be IV heparin. It's pretty straightforward. You can administer boluses in the lab, repeated boluses, just looking to, to meet your activated clotting time or ACT time goal. It's based off of, you know, almost two decades of research, kind of comparing specifically for primary PCI and STEMI, comparing bivalrudin versus heparin. Um, you've got trials from 2008, Horizons AMI, that basically found, yes, bivalrudin was associated with a lower rate of major bleeding, but you actually had higher rates of stem thrombosis. And you could argue that that reduced major bleeding was secondary to the fact that you had mandatory glycoprotein inhibitor use with the, with the heparin group, right? Things like agrostat, uh those agents being utilized mandated with the heparin. And so there's this, this iteration of trial after iteration, basically trying to correct the mistakes in the prior trial, um, you know, so attempting to look at well, can we, can we look at bivalrudin again compared to heparin? This time we'll take it in, in just a STEMI patient population instead of an all-comers ACS patient population. Uh, again, the 2013 Euromax trial was plagued with a six-fold greater use of glycoprotein inhibitor uh, in the heparin group again. And so then in 2017, you have Validate Sweetheart that looks at uh, the heparin versus bival conversation again Glycoprotein use was much more in line with modern day practice, less than actually three percent in both groups, and bival was found to not be superior to hep in respect to the composite of death, MI, or major bleeding. And so it seemed to kind of like settle the score. Now, two thousand twenty two comes along and there's the Bright Ford trial that's published and it kind of reopens the door. The investigators of that trial argue that the prior studies still had issues that some did not mandate a post-PCI infusion of 5L. There were dosing discrepancies in terms of a low dose versus a high dose that were utilized. And so they set to to go out and repeat all of these studies, but again, fix the prior problems. So they had, you know, uh, well over 6,000 patients. They looked at specifically STEMI patients undergoing a primary PCI strategy. They mandated that a full dose, post-PCI infusion of 5L was administered and continued for two to four hours after PCI. And they restricted glycoprotein inhibitor use to bailout therapy only, which is obviously in line with what most of us see these days. These are patients who have a thrombotic complication during the PCI, maybe distal embolization of the clot. And so this is why these agents are started, not being started up front or upstream. Um, But, you know, Nick, again, the trial is plagued with issues. Again, there was a statistically significant higher rate of glycoprotein inhibitor use in the heparin group, uh, 13.5% versus about 11.5%. But surprisingly, the primary outcome, which was all-cause death or major bleeding uh, via the BARC criteria, was statistically significantly uh, improved for the bivalve group at 3% versus uh, just over 4%. So where does this kind of leave us? Yeah. If we remember, Bival was downgraded, you know, from a class one recommendation in the twenty thirteen SEMI guidelines uh to a two B in the latest American REVAST guidelines. Uh and similar to the Europeans with their twenty twenty three update just from the summer, uh they note the four trial, but they still keep Bival as a two A recommendation despite this. Uh commenting that this was only performed in an Eastern Asian population. A third of patients still received clopidogrel instead of a potent p 2 12 inhibitor, and that there were certain subgroups that are kind of unexplainably not demonstrating the same benefit overall. So I think if this is one piece of evidence, I think it was a well-done study. I think there are some, some commentary to be had about its external generalizability, uh, but it, it does kind of contradict almost two decades of research that said the opposite. So I must personally say I'm not entirely sold. I think a lot of centers are using heparin. A lot of interventionists feel comfortable and familiar with heparin. And I think it's probably going to take a little bit more to to get people off of, of heparin as their workforce anticoag.
0: Yeah. You, you can't take, you can't take for granted comfort and familiarity in these, in these high risk um, patients where if things go wrong, you want to feel like you know exactly what to do. You're familiar with all the kinetics, what to do, what not to do those things. And Everyone knows we don't like change in medicine. So it's gonna take it's gonna take at least one, probably two more for real and then guideline changes, right? Or probably like the one, two, three for, for true change to be made. Um now in the cath lab, right, one of the most common causes, if not most common cause of cardiogenic shock is a STEMI. So theoretically patient could have some temporary mechanical circulatory support implemented in the cath lab, help augment that cardiac output um, while you're, you know, trying to intervene or let the heart rest a little bit. So how does your anticoagulation choice change if a device is initiated?
1: I don't think it necessarily changes, um, although from some of the past data you could consider uh, bivalirudin as a a lower bleeding risk agent. So if you think you are going to have issues, you had maybe a vascular complication already. Uh, you know, with the insertion of the device, uh, I I think that might be reasonable. But then again, you now talk about what evidence do you have with that anticoagulant with that device? Um, you know, so do we have a lot of evidence or recommendations for heparin with with you know our pericutaneous ventricular just devices like an Impella? Do we have a lot of data for bivalrudin and, and, you know, a balloon pump, I mean, we could have a whole conversation on whether or not anticoagulation is necessary for a balloon pump. Um, so I think that depends. I know that obviously if we start going into the realm of ECLS and ECMO, uh, there's a growing a growing uh, body of evidence to support bivalrudin as the first line anticoagulant of choice. Um, and so, you know, maybe dependent on your center. Again, I think at this point, your center's familiarity, uh, what is on formulary, what is restricted, Yes, yeah, certainly, I think ECMO probably would be the strongest indication at this point to consider changing your anticoagulant at that point and maybe considering if heparin is your standard workhorse. Um, but as of right now, I think when most devices are put in, it's usually after the PCI has started, um, you know, regardless of whether we talk about what's the appropriate time to initiate mechanical support, whether that's before, during, or after the PCI, the majority is still being put in either during or after. And so by that point you've probably already started down the route of one anticoagulant and you know there are, there's obviously risks with with jumping ship and going to another midway
0: yeah i'm big team bivalirudin for ecmo and my biggest thing is because i think those patients are just more likely to be on anticoagulation longer and that's when the longer you're on it's when i find heparin starts to not be as easy but if you're talking that kind of less than week time frame right less than 7 days I, I really don't care strongly. But when you get longer, that's when, and especially those those ECMO patients are at highest risk of that. That's kind of what where my mind goes. Um, but that's a really that's a really good point. Now, for the listeners, I had a whole episode diving into some of these nuances. We usually utilize some patient cases with Craig Beavers. So um, let's go into the pharmacotherapy options for cardiogenic shock and let's start with some of those vasoactive agents. And before we kind of get into the the classes themselves, when we're starting agents for cardiac output augmentation, right? That cardiogenic shock. When do we start an inotrope, and when should we be reaching for a vasopressor instead?
1: So I think you know that's going to depend on what kind of data do you have in front of you, right? Are you are you confident that it is is cardiac function that's the issue uh, versus? the hypotension, uh, and, and is there a vasodilatory septic component? You know, it could be a mixed picture as well, depending on the patient in front of you. Um, you know, when you think about cardiogenic shock and breaking it down, very simplistically, it's a problem with the pump compared to a problem with the pipes. And so do you have data, you know, looking at your cardiac output or cardiac indices? Do you have systemic vascular resistance to say, hey, this, this SBR is actually quite high and probably indicative of acute untreated cardiogenic shock? Um, you know, do we have access to a wedge pressure or a CVP to evaluate right atrial pressure? Um, I think those are kind of the, the components that are going into your decision in terms of inotrope versus, versus vasoconstrictor or vasopressor. Obviously, if you have someone who's hypotensive in front of you, uh, you know, uh, which the definition can vary depending on what you're looking at most of the time, it's usually a systolic less than 90 uh, for, from a cardiogenic component you know, then maybe you consider initiation of both. But obviously, we know with the initiation of our inotropes, our traditional inotropes are really inodilators. So there will be some component uh, of of hypotension that could be seen with the initiation of each agent. So making that decision can be somewhat tricky. uh, And and oftentimes, I think it's done simultaneously, right? Something like initiating some dobutamine as well as norepinephrine at the same time to maintain uh, perfusion to your end organs while also improving cardiac function acutely.
0: And yeah, that's a, that's a great reference. Shout out to a recent trial of the week, the CATS trial, right? That looked at some norepi and dobutamine. So let's start with inotropes here when we're talking about our vasoactives and our two workhorse agents, of course, dobutamine and milrinone. So we'll get into the trials in just a second, but what are PKPD or specific kind of drug considerations to think of when you're deciding which one of these agents to start?
1: I think the biggest thing for me, Nick, is the half-life, right? When I think about acute management of a patient, I want to be able to titrate a drug, drug relatively quickly. And so with a half-life of, you know, a, a few minutes for dobutamine compared to, you know, a few hours for milrinone, you really aren't going to see full effect and full steady state effect of that milrinone for multiple hours. And so making a dose adjustment quickly and rapidly is much more achievable with something like dobutamine. Now they both enhance, you know, calcium availability within the myocyte. That's how they both enhance contractility. One just does it directly through the beta receptor, while the other inhibits uh, phosphodiesterase and, and the the breakdown of cyclic AMP. And because of the way milrinone uh, has its mechanism, and that phosphodiesterase is kind of all throughout our vasculature, you can find yourself with a with theoretically a bit more vasodilation with milrinone uh, compared to than what you would expect. Uh, with dobutamine, given the the saturation and density of beta two receptors is relatively low throughout the masseter. So, where can that be beneficial? I think one of the patient populations where milrinone should probably be your go to agent would be maybe right sided failure, where that vasodilation can actually be beneficial in lowering pulmonary vascular resistance, and in other words, dropping the afterload on the RV. Uh, and, and hopefully indirectly increasing stroke volume. So that might be a patient population. I'm going to gravitate towards Millerone first, despite it not being pharmacokinetically my favorite drug to titrate. Um, the other thing too, right, is elimination. Renal elimination is a problem with millernone. We know that it's going to not only prolong the half-life, but they're going to be more sensitive to initial doses. Um, so it's going to be critical to take that into account if you do feel like that's the best choice um, of agent for that patient.
0: So there's a pretty big landmark trial, the do trial, comparing these two. You know, Between that and maybe if there's studies that have been published since, what have we found ultimately when comparing these two agents, like looking in terms of their impact on clinical outcomes in cardiogenic shock?
1: Yeah, I think do was great because it really did fill this gap of evidence that we, that we didn't have much on in the realm of cardiogenic shock. Uh, we had some retrospective data before this, but this was really the first kind of double blind randomized controlled trial that we had. Obviously, it's at a single center, fewer than 200 patients randomized between both groups. Um, you know, one of my, my comments about the Doremi trials that it was mostly sky stage C cardiogenic shock, that's kind of your classical definition, and there were only 10 patients out of the 200 that had a balloon pump and only 20 or so that had a a SWAN, a PA catheter. And so I think that gives you a signal for kind of the lack of acuity some of those patients studied uh, were. Now, you know, I'm not saying that they weren't a sick patient population. I just think in this patient population, it was less noticeable that the benefit and effect that we were going to see. Most of the patients were randomized almost a day after ICU admission. Um, There were, you know, dose adjustments based on, basically commission uh, decision not necessarily standardized by a protocol so i think that those are some things that that make it a questionable to uh blanket statements say that they are equivalent agents i would say that all of our kind of anecdotal fears right i, I previously mentioned how i thought maybe miller known be more problematic from a hypotensive standpoint people think because of that direct beta stimulation you're more likely to uh, induce tachyarrhythmias with the dobutamine none of that was really seen with this trial so while this very large composite outcome that included, you know, four or five different endpoints uh, didn't find a difference. There also was no difference in what we were expecting from all of that PK, uh, PD theoret- theory to apply to actual outcomes. That's
0: a really, a really good point on the uh, acuity, right? Those really, really sick patients, the ones that we're spending so much time on in our CVICU that they're... Not as represented as as you might think going into the into the study, so I think that's a really good point. That was kind of a win Whatever agent you like, you you left that trial feeling vindicated right No that didn't necessarily change practice one way or another for anything other than maybe you're a little more comfortable in some of those patients with the adverse effects showing no difference. but yeah, i don't I think it was great literature, right? Just because it wasn't positive doesn't mean it wasn't helpful, but it didn't necessarily show us one versus the other, everyone's preference is probably still going to be what they end up using. Now, kind of in the other ring, right? This was the warm up, the inotropes. Now in the other ring, right? We have the vasopressors one corner. We have epinephrine, right? The historical heavyweight favorite, right? That's the, he, Mike Tyson in his prime versus you have norepinephrine up and comer, Jack of all trades, right? You think of it as like, it's my, as a Mount Rushmore of critical care drugs for me. So, Is there guidance to say that one of these agents is better than another for cardiogenic shock or is it, you know, maybe a subset of cardiogenic shock or is it again going to be kind of like inotropes where it's going to be pretty um, patient or provider dependent?
1: So we do have a small trial, the Optima CC trial, and this looked at a specific subset of cardiogenic shock, specifically those secondary to an acute MI. Right, And and traditionally, we're we're starting to kind of differentiate cardiogenic shock as heart failure-mediated versus AMI-mediated. So this looks specifically at AMI-mediated cardiogenic shock. It was a double-blind randomized controlled trial. It was uh, throughout uh, nine ICUs, although they were all in France. And really, the primary outcome was looking at change in cardiac index between the two agents. So it wasn't necessarily the greatest hard clinical outcome. They did have a primary safety outcome as well that looked at the incidence of refractory cardiogenic shock. So they kind of defined that as persistently hypotensive with uh, you know various signs of end-organ dysfunction, despite being on greater than one mic per kilo per minute of levo um, or epi or greater than 10 mics per kilo per minute of dobutamine. They did find no significant difference in the primary outcome for change in cardiac index. It was transiently higher in the epi group at hours two and four, but it was not uh, sustained throughout the trial period. And then in terms of the safety outcome, it was significantly worse for epinephrine. Uh, And this this is actually why the study was terminated prematurely. Almost 40% of the epinephrine group had a refractory cardiogenic shock compared to less than 10% of the norepi group. Um, So, you know, bottom line is that in patients with uh, AMI-mediated C-shock, that are, I'll say this, successfully revascularized because that's who this patient population where was post-revascularization. The use of epi, while it may lead to a transient increase in cardiac index compared to norepinephrine, which I think anybody, you know, who has a, a knowledge of, of the beta activity of both drugs would probably have suspected that epi would do that, um, but this came at the cost of increased Refractory cardiogenic shock more likely to be implanted um, uh, or started on ECMO, excuse me, uh, more likely to be tachycardic, and then some various markers of myocardial oxygen demand, which are all things that are not lending you to enhanced recovery post MI.
0: And this is in line with right the the SOAP two trial showing norepinephrine versus dopamine and that's when they found that subset in cardiogenic shock right that norepinephrine was superior to dopamine and then they kind of went against epinephrine so um, I agree it's the like my argument always is it's the it's the downstream it's some of the side effects that can come from it right and the theory of of it's got because the thought is, is that epinephrine's got that when you look at the classic vasopressor chart, right? Epinephrine's got that one extra plus in the beta one box. <laughs> so it's got to be better for MIs, right? It's gonna help increase it's that cardiac be. output. Um, and I think we're seeing more and more that you know those side effects might inhibit some of the effectiveness that you'd think about. So that's a really, really good point. Um now in this same population, right? The population that we're starting inotropes and or vasopressors for. Right. When you're in severe cardiogenic shock or just severe shock in general, you're trying to avoid using the gut. Right. And for STEMI and ACS patients, their antiplatelet agents post PCI are obviously extremely important. Right. The biggest rethrombosis risk is in that acute period. So, when should we consider using IV agents rather than our classic PO in, in agents where we're not necessarily titrating to effect, right? This isn't heparin where we're getting an APTT in six hours and we can see what we can do with it.
1: So I think, you know, when are you going to be considering IV agents compared to those enteral agents? Obviously, this is a huge issue with that, that shock associated hypotension. You're going to have delayed absorption, delayed gastric motility. Uh, you're going to have decreased perfusion of the liver. It might lead to reductions in, in clopidogrel and prostagirls activation. Those are both prodrugs. Um, all of this leaves you at risk for a thrombotic event around that stent placement. So I don't think you can necessarily say that there is a exact uh, dose of norepinephrine or epinephrine or uh, of, of inodilator that would force your hand to say, we absolutely should convert to an IV agent. But I think, you know, as you look across the course of time, looking at, you know, your your rate of vasopressor, whether or not it's increasing, how quickly and how rapidly it's going up, uh, not to mention, you know, what is the ischemic risk from the get-go? Was this a pretty straightforward, uh, you know, PCI where there was a very large, short stent that was placed in the middle of the LAD without problems? Or is this something that's a bifurcating stent at the left main going into the LAD with overlapping stents? Uh, you know, maybe of smaller diameter, right? I'm starting to think of other ischemic risk factors that might make you uh, fire, you know, sooner to switch to an IV agent.
0: Yeah, I love that because this isn't one of those things that can be like checked or pre-checked on an electronic order set. Like if X is greater than this, use this, right? This is one where the you're going to see a crowd around the room typically, right? You're going to see the interventionalists with either the ICU or cardiac surgeons, they're all going to be there. Right. And this is going to be a group decision, right. With everyone involved. Um, And that's where, right. Like we're all doing, being part of the team, making it known your, your thoughts, your expertise and being involved in that conversation. And that's what it is, right. It's all a discussion of risks and benefits and it's going to be patient specific, right? You could have the same person, you have the same two people going through the same procedures, but based on their backgrounds, you might choose different strategies. So we are looking for the easy pill, but unfortunately, like everything we're learning, not so much. Now, if we need to go that, that IV route, there's two agents I think of. One might not even be, right? One is, is IV the and the other is the glycoprotein 2B3A, right? And it's, I almost think of that, is that like a hybrid, like antiplatelet, anticoagulant, right? Because it works on those platelets. But let us know when you consider using one versus the other, because you mentioned earlier um, considering using the glycoprotein inhibitors in those patients with kind of large thrombi burden or downstream um, issues,
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean, they do, you know, I'm just going to call them GP, GP inhibitors to to make this a little bit easier on on the listeners and myself. Um, you know, when we think about those agents, tarofaban, eptifibitide, they're really working at the site where you have cross-linking of fibrinogen uh, between adjacent activated platelets. And obviously that's the, that's where your coagulation cascade and the antiplatelet activation really comes together, right? When that fibrinogen cross-linking leads to those really strong fibrin uh, mesh that creates a really stable clot, and that's obviously simulated from throbin. From so in this scenario, these are really potent agents, uh, and we know that the longer that they are on board, the longer that they're administered, the higher the risk of bleeding. Um, and, and, and really, they were studied in an era much before dual antiplatelet therapy. Um, these were, you know, done before we had potent P2I-12 inhibitors. And so because of that, their upstream utilization has definitely fallen off, and we are reserving GP inhibitors for those bailout situations. Um, you know, other things and differences between cangrelor, which is really upstream uh, of that glycoprotein receptor, right, working to where ADP binds at the p 2 y 12 receptor and then would signal for the activation of the platelet. Uh, to be able to then cross-link with fibrinogen, it is a much a much faster half-life at two to five minutes. Uh, you know, if you go to turn the kangaroo off, you can have uh, complete recovery of your platelet activity within thirty to sixty minutes. And this is the exact opposite of like a protein inhibitors. So you have a much longer half-life of you know roughly two hours. Offset can take anywhere between four to eight hours, if not longer, because you also bring into the fact that those agents are renally eliminated. And that's another benefit to cangrelor. It has organ-independent metabolism, and so you are not reliant on renal function, which we know in these patients is likely to take a hit, uh, likely to be to be lower than expected. Uh, and so it creates a conundrum because you, we really don't have a lot of head-to-head data between cangrelor and uh, you know our GP inhibitors in this arena. Let alone, I, I don't want us to forget we don't really have a lot of data for cangrelor compared to modern-day, modern-practice antithelialization. Mm-hmm. It was compared against clavin. And the FDA didn't even approve it when they first looked at all of the data. So I do think there should be caution in Kangrelor's utilization. There's drug interactions that we need to be considering with the pop 12 inhibitors. But then again, when you think about a patient who is probably at a very high risk uh, for bleed, maybe has had a ton of invasive vascular uh, access done throughout the day, right? We're thinking cannulation for ECMO, uh, various impella devices. Those are patients that are likely to be going at risk or already be at a higher risk of bleed, let alone all of the hematologic derangements that come along with those, uh, that put them at risk and you would want to have an agent that you could quickly turn off should something terrible happen from a bleeding perspective versus we think about our glycoprotein inhibitors. We're kind of stuck with them. uh, You know, if something goes awry, let alone if they have renal dysfunction, we could be stuck with them for quite a while.
0: Yeah, those are all really good points. I mean, the the studies looking at those glyco the the GPIs. I, thank you. I also agree with uh, saving <laughs> saving uh, me uh, studied in 1997. Right, those are some of the the, the, yeah. the dates that those are um, published in. Right, so we're we're 25 plus years, and not that. Hey, the, there are certainly important trials and things, but showing that you know our care of these patients has changed significantly from 1997 to 2023. And you brought up Kangalore. That's something I like to mention is that, right, only about 11% of those patients were STEMI patients in that initial, yeah. was it the Champion Phoenix trial, I believe. Um, maybe it was a yeah. Champion PCI. I forget which one, but um, yeah, important points, again, um, nuances to to certainly consider. Now, for discussion's sake, let's go ahead and say that our patient, we got Kangalore. Kangalore is on board. Um, that's what the That's what the team wanted. So, of course, when we're using an IV antiplatelet, of course, we're going to have to eventually get them to oral, right? We're not sending them home on a continuous IV. So how do we do that? What are considerations when you're transitioning from cangrelor to those different P2Y12s? Because I'm guessing based on mechanism of action, we got to do things a little bit differently.
1: Yeah, certainly. There is a drug interaction that we should all be aware of. And when we kind of group these together, I think the easiest way to, to, to keep it simple is to consider clopidogrel, prasagrel, both cyanopyridines, both within their own group that will have an interaction with either cangrelor or ticagrelor, which to keep it simple, we'll just call them non Um There was a recent trial looking at cangrelor to prasagrel. There's this whole, these, these trials, the SWAP trials. Currently, we're up to the iteration of SWAP6, uh, and they have looked at going from various uh, you know, P2Y12s uh, between each other. And now what we, we are looking at is data for Kangrelor, an IV agent to prasugrel. And so we didn't find an interaction going from Kangrelor to ticagrelor, But going from Kangrelor to prasugrel. right now we're jumping to a There was an interaction identified. And so they studied this. It's just a small PKPD study, basically three groups. You either got prasugrel at the start of the PCI you got kangrelor and prasugrel at the start of PCI, or you had kangrelor at the start and then prasugrel at the end of the two-hour kangrelor infusion. And what they found is that when you gave the prasugrel and kangrelor at the same time at the start of the PCI, uh, there was, you know, the the platelet reactivity units, which they measured via the Verify Now P2Y12 assay, something I have in my institution. That you know, I'm not sure, uh, you know. There's a host of different platelet reactivity assays and, and methods that can be used out there. Um, but that's the one that they looked at. And it was actually much lower um, with Prasigrel only versus Kangrelor and Prasigrel. So that suggests that when Kangrelor is running, it is preventing the, the binding and efficacy of Prasigrel. And so I think you could probably extend that to the other sign of uh, And we really should be uh, avoiding an overlap between those agents.
0: Swap trials are trying to become the medical version of the now. Now that's music series, right? We're going to get up to like swap <laughs> 38 before. I mean, yeah. sixes, that's crazy. Um, but that's, that's, that's good advice. Obviously, we need tons of research into this. So I'm just, any, any of those researchers listening, I'm just teasing here. Um, now, there are important medications, right, that ACS patients should be discharged on, right? They call it that guideline-directed medical therapy. But Nick, hand up. Right. A lot of us join the ICU because we're not great at, you know, those discharge checklists and things like that. Right. So help us out. Give us kind of a mini list for the ICU pharmacist or pharmacist in general. When you're reviewing the STEMI or NSTEMI discharge information, what are like, hey, you got to see these or, or you need to be reaching out. What 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 comprises that checklist?
1: So we've obviously touched on antiplatelets and, you know, we could have uh, 10 more podcast episodes on duration of depth, abbreviated strategies, how to de-escalate. Oh, hey, what if we throw in an anticoagulant? How do we handle triple therapy? So I won't touch on those, but obviously an aspirin and a P2Y12 inhibitor is going to be the basis of your antiplatelet regimen. I'd say the next thing to consider is a statin. Uh, and so really right now, our LDL goals are a little bit different between what the American guidelines are recommending, what the European guidelines are recommending. You know, we're looking to target less than 55 if you're looking at the European guidelines, less than 70 if you're looking at the the latest iteration of the American guidelines. I'll say the caveat to that is the latest ADA guidelines their standards of care and diabetes they actually recommend if you are secondary cardiovascular prevention, that's the that's these patients, these ACS patients, and have diabetes, they do recommend targeting all the way down to less than 55. So, I'll say personally, I have adopted early initiation of what I call combination therapy. So, regardless of what statin uh, or lipid-lowering therapy they were receiving beforehand, I am very quick to add on ezetimibe or zetia to a high-intensity statin. So we're talking our high-intensity statins. I think we all know this, our Crestor 20 to 40, our Intorum statin 40 to 80. Uh, we know that they're going to achieve at least 50% reduction in LDL. Uh, you know, the one thing to remember, too, is that if you're getting an LDL on that index MI admission, it's likely falsely lower. Instead of an acute phase reactant, it's actually falsely lower in that acute phase period. And so if you don't think you're going to get below 70, uh, with a 50% reduction, I think we should all have a pretty low threshold to initiate a combination with Zetia. Um, I've been finding insurance companies are also looking for ZEDIA to be on board before they're improving the injectables like a PCSK9 inhibitor. Um, so really thinking high-intensity statin may be an additional agent. You want to be less than 70, and depending on the patient in front of you, maybe less than 55. Um, you know, in terms of other agents on top of that, it really then comes down to is, is what is their left ventricular ejection fraction. So you're going to get that post-MI echo. You're going to look at their, their EF, and that's going to drive some of the other uh, agents you'll throw on board. So if we're thinking about RAS inhibition, our ACEs and ARBs, uh, these are class one recommendations to initiate an ACE uh, inhibitor with patients who have heart failure symptoms, an EF less than or equal to 40%, uh, diabetes, and or CKD. Otherwise, if you don't meet one of those and you don't have a reduced EF, it's a much lower recommendation to initiate an ACE. And and the data really is driven by, that beneficial data is driven by patients with a reduced ejection fraction. Um, Same along the lines of our uh, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, right? Things like uh, plarinone, spironolactone. The guidelines, again, give a class one recommendation uh, for an ejection fraction of 40% or lower and having heart failure or diabetes. Uh, That's a class one recommendation. Um, Beyond that, if your EF is normal, there is no recommendation to initiate. So I guess that's one less thing to look for, uh, one less part of that polypharmacy uh, that we all get worried about. Beta blockers, I think, opens up a nice question about the future of beta blockers. All of that data for beta blockers uh, that we have really comes from an age uh, uh, before the reperfusion era right, before we were really having PCI in a timely manner, let alone with, with adequate fibrinolytic utilization. Uh, and they were om- almost all semi patients enrolled in a lot of that old beta blocker evidence. So while it's still in the guidelines to be considered, regardless of ejection fraction, again, the strongest recommendation for beta blockers comes in those that have an EF of 40% or lower. And in this case, that's regardless of heart failure symptoms. So beta blocker, uh you know spiro clarinone your acer arb uh, and then that's the question is based on patient characteristics but obviously lipid lowering therapy like statin high intensity statin and then your antiplatelets make up the majority
0: that's a really good point that you'll you'll have you almost have a the a tree right most all patients should get XYZ and then it goes into what's your EF, what are your comorbidities, etc. Et so um Definitely feels like a, an easy protocolized way, right. To be able to get some sort of checklist or things to quickly, more quickly be able to look at that stuff, but important points. Appreciate you keeping up to date. I feel like, look, every time I turn around, there's a landmark cardiac study, um, and they all <laughs> are named amazingly, which is like, they somehow keep getting better, right? Eventually you think all these names would get done, but nope, the cards trial keeps bringing the heat. So, uh, I'm a big fan of the, of the acronym names you, you get to learn and teach about. Now, speaking of those, of those acronym names, research you get to teach about, thinking about what research is on the horizon that's getting you excited, where you're looking forward to re- reviewing results, things you might find that ultimately change the way we care for these
1: patients. Yeah, I think to add on to the comment about beta blockers before and incredible names, you have a lot of large-scale randomized controlled trials in the works right now to answer the question about beta blockers in patients with an ES that's above 40% and EF that's preserved. You've got the Dan Block trial. You've got the beta MI trial looking to enroll almost 10,000 patients in classic cardiology fashion. Um, these hopefully will be coming out in the next few years and I think uh, are really going to uh, ask us and, and test how, how we utilize beta blockers at post-MI today. Other things, you know, SGLT2 inhibitors, they're the miracle drug. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter where we turn. It seems that SGLT2 inhibitors are having a benefit. Those are being studied, uh, you know, during the index MI event. You've got the DAPA-MI trial, MPACT mi trial uh, looking to come out. I'll say, I don't know if I'm entirely convinced. You know, we, we had the Paradise MI trial that looked at Entresto or sucubatril Sartin. Uh, immediately post-MI with reduced EF, and it did not find superiority over standard therapy uh, immediately post-STEMI, uh, as it did in, in patients with traditional heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. So uh, we'll see, but hey, the SGLT2 inhibitors continue to surprise me. They continue to make me uh, a, a happy uh, cardiology pharmacist, so I am all for that. I think another area is really the anti uh, antiplatelet strategies surrounding STEMI, specifically IV agents. Um, so we, we do have a couple of trials, again, with those forward-thinking Europeans. Um, they're actively recruiting right now, looking at uh, Kangrelor in a high-bleeding risk patient population compared to a non-high-bleeding risk patient population. And then there's the DAPT shock AMI trial uh, coming out of the Czech Republic right now. They're enrolling and recruiting that will directly compare Kangrelor to Berlinta and AMI-mediated C-shock. And so I think that answers a huge question that I have right now, right? potent PY-12 inhibitors. Is it, is it going to stand the test?
0: All right, Nick, you've done an awesome job. I mean, highlighting, I mean, the care of ACS, right from, from acute presentation to discharge each one of these little pieces, let alone the checklist could be its own, its own episode. So listeners keep that in mind, but Nick, if there's a, if there's an idea or a point or a few of them that you want to make regarding the care of ACS patients kind of take home points, what would those be?
1: You know, I think if I had to make one kind of overarching theme for all of this management is that it's the data is pointing us towards a patient-specific approach in terms of taking into the nuance of every patient that comes in front of us, deciding where they fit in the picture and what's the best decision weighing risks and benefits of everything, right? If we think about it in the ED and we're contemplating whether or not we should upstream load with a P2I-12 inhibitor. Right, taking into account, is it an NSTEMI versus a STEMI? Is this a patient at high bleeding risk or not? Uh, do we think it's likely that they have multi-vessel disease and are going to need a bypass? You know, to a patient who is in front of us and, and is not going to go to the cath lab, but they are willing to accept the risk of a lytic and, and maybe they're an elderly patient, do we uh, look at, at the benefit versus risk of using a reduced dose strategy of connectiply? And then that goes on to C-shock, right? We talked about the do me trial, where we really didn't find a huge difference between milrinone and dobutamine. And so maybe we go after and selecting the appropriate agent for uh, the patient in front of us. Do we think that there is some RV involvement in their shock? And so maybe we go towards milrinone, or maybe this is a patient who looks like they're headed towards CBVH, and we want something titratable. So overall, like I'd say, is this, uh, you know, is, is there... Multiple take-on points, no, but I would just like to say remember the patient in front of you and take the evidence that we have and and fit it to the picture.
0: So well said because that's where, right, pharmacists, the medication experts, that's where we come in with understanding these nuances and being able to contribute like, hey – I was patient 68, you're talking about thrombolytics, have we, you know, and that's where you're able to to kind of bring in that, right, that multidisciplinary care approach. So that's awesome. Love that. That was one of my big take-home points as well from from this discussion. So uh, Nick, what an awesome job. Listeners, reach out to him at PharmD to the LAD. Um, Nick, we appreciate your time, expertise coming on, talking about one of those kind of core topics. So um, greatly appreciate all the nuance and expertise you, you brought on here.
1: Nick, thank you so much for having me. Uh, and, you know, tonight's the uh, Bills home opener, so I think I'm going to go uh, grab some chicken wings. I'll be at off from Buffalo. I'll have to deal with what I get in math uh, and, and kick back and hopefully watch them kick some butt tonight.
0: Bills Mafia, let's go. No one's rooting for the Jets. Sorry <laughs> if you're a New York Jets fan. That is that is not, not my team here. So, um, Nick, have fun. Go Bills. We'll talk soon. Another big thanks to uh, Nick Servati. Let me know uh, what you thought about the episode. Reach out uh, at pharmacy to dose, pharmacy to dose at gmail.com. The website, if you're going to notice, right, it's a little bit under construction. Got some fun things coming. Uh, Give me just a few days. Uh, You'll still be able to access the reference list as normal. All the median things that that are hosted from there, you'll still be able to look at and things. Um, We're just doing a little construction. Uh, so don't worry. Uh, I'll kind of make a little more of an announcement when, when uh, things open back up. But just hang tight. Appreciate that. Um, and the reference list is an awesome one for this episode. So uh, find it in that podcast episode description as well as in about you know a few days whenever it's open back up. Pharmacytodose the website. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com slash apps. Again, that is qxmd.com slash The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com. The podcast provides general information only and does not offer individualized medical or professional health services, including pharmaceutical advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the contents and materials on the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal health care professional. The users and patients should not ignore delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call 911, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast or those of the hosting and guests and should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of A C P or the critical care PRN. ACP and the Critical Care PRN. Disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.